You're listening to Payday, the global payroll podcast from CloudPay. And I'm your host, David Barak. In this episode, we're talking about lessons in digital transformation with Brian Summer of TechVentive. People are trying to start a project before they even understand what is the art of the possible. And that requires people stop, take the time, learn, get really smart about what's possible out there, and then ideate some new kinds of processes and solutions. They're going to provide structural and competitive advantage for the company longer term. You can't shortcut this stuff. If you peeked under the covers, they've never really spent the time to imagine if I put three killer technologies together, like workflow, exception handling, artificial intelligence, whatever, can I radically change how we do, for example, time reporting for payroll? Welcome to another episode of the Payday Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brian Summer. Brian is the author of a recently published book, Digital with Impact. He is a former technology consulting partner at Accenture, where he held leadership roles in their software intelligence, human capital and finance and performance management groups. He's also a former CEO of a dot-com. And really, for the last 16 years, he's owned his own firm that focuses on transformation projects and digital transformation projects for large companies. He's also a prolific writer that's published over 600 articles on the technology space. It's a real honor to have you on the show with us today, Brian. Welcome to the Payday Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. So, Brian, I found your book quite fascinating. A lot of those messages around the challenges faced in the transformation projects really resonated with me. And in particular, I thought about it from the perspective of our our audience. A lot of our listeners are senior leaders in HR and in payroll, usually with a global remit. And I know your experience spans a number of other functions and departments, but I felt that there were a lot of lessons there that applied to everything HR organizations and global payroll organizations are challenged with today as the momentum of change is starting to hit their departments. So I'm keen to get your thoughts before we get into some more specific questions on the applicability of what you've written to HR and to payroll professionals. Well, you know, I get it that this is really targeted for more of the HR kind of audience. And interestingly enough, after I did the book, um, I started getting a lot of feedback from people who had read it. And what becomes abundantly clear is just how critical HR is going to have to be in a lot of these transformational efforts. And I think that's rather interesting because um, um, the fact I did run into some HR executives who think they can single-handedly transform a company. And I'm not sure that HR can do that kind of heavy lifting all by itself, particularly when I look at the fact that many of these transformational efforts, they touch almost every aspect of the company, including ones that HR has never had any real responsibility for, like creating an all-new, let's say, an omni-channel retailing experience or something like that. These are very interesting times. And I think I think what I'm learning uh, lately is that uh, so many of the HR folks can't afford to get bogged down in some 
uh, low cost, low strategic value kind of initiatives, they're going to have to get focused on these bigger changes coming up. I'll give you one example. I read recently of a chief HR officer who's concerned that their company, because of the way they're changing their production manufacturing uh, methods and locations, moving to more of a service model, uh, products as a service, and a whole bunch of other new stuff, looks like they're going to have to maybe replace as much as 85% of their workforce within the next five years. That should cause any chief HR officer to have apoplexy. And I say that because so many of them I run into, they struggle just to fill the open spots they have today. There's no way in the world they could replace 85% of their workforce and grow the company in an outsized fashion. Interesting times for HR. That's very true. These are very interesting times for HR and payroll departments and many other functions in the organization. Reading through your book, it's really clear that digital transformation projects are very difficult. Very difficult to see through to their original or even full vision. And organizations that are trying to make HR or payroll changes, you know, a lot of times we see that these projects that impact the employee experience around the globe, they face these challenges. And a lot of times they'll actually walk away from the transformation project once they have a full view of the changes it might require and the investment it may involve. Even worse, they'll make some minor change by switching the HR platform, but not the processes, or they'll uh, you know, undertake a global transformation project around payroll and HR, and then end up installing just a couple of new vendors, not changing processes, keeping things fragmented. So based on what you've seen in your experience working with uh, companies, is transformation, our transformation projects, are they for every company or should some companies avoid it? Well, what happens, let's talk about how this problem manifests itself. Lots of board members will fly off every year to Davos to the World Economic Forum and they get an earful about how much radical change is going on in business today. And they'll come back from that meeting all pumped up and they'll start sitting down with the executive committee members of a company telling them point blank, you need to transform. Specifically, you need to digitally transform. You need to have new business models and everything else. The problem then begins that um, the executives kind of hear that message and then things get lost in the translation. And more importantly, uh, I've seen people go like, oh, well, we need to digitally transform. And I've seen people take that mandate and it becomes like we need to replace our ERP software. And I'm like, no, that's not what they said. Uh, they're talking about new business models, new ways of making money, uh, all new cost structures, factories of the future, those kind of things. And, you know, so we have this translation problem, but there's another bigger issue and that uh, I write about quite a bit in the book has to do with a lot of companies, frankly, just aren't in any position to do this kind of big transformational change. If you peeked under the covers, you'd be amazed to find out that while this company still gets its payroll done or can uh, get its products out the door to suppliers, like sausage making and legislation, you really don't want to know how they're getting it done. You know, I would find people in companies uh, I'd go to high-tech aerospace, clean room kind of manufacturing facilities, and yet all the production status of all the parts is being put on magnetic whiteboards with paper slips. Wow. Uh, it's not automated. 
and it's not going to be either. I've run into companies where critical individuals who have all kinds of institutional knowledge about how things get done, they're all retiring, boomers are retiring record numbers, and no one's got a plan on how they're going to recapture that knowledge and keep it in the firm. And then finally, another one of those examples I, I, I see frequently is the plant, physical plant and equipment might have been designed by great-grandpa in 1907, and yet you walk the plants and you see things like they've stuck a robotic uh, welding uh, equipment in one corner, and there's a 3D printer in another, and on and on. And you realize just how grossly inefficient this stuff is. And not only that, but the building was never designed for the production volumes that are going through there today. And you can't stop this stuff to go implement a new transformation. So what happens is companies try to do incremental change, not transformational change. And that is a death sentence, believe it or not, in most cases. You can't incrementally get your way to a lot of big transformational end games because your competitors are not going to approach this kind of change incrementally. You'll take longer getting there doing the incremental route and your comp and your um, competition will go to it real quick. So it's a real gnarly mixed bag out there and only the most process efficient and most capable companies are going to go go very far with some of these transformational efforts. And uh, I've heard you mention before that many projects that are that actually do get started, they get started before executives even agree on what's to be done. Correct. How does that How does that happen? Somebody from the board comes down with this loosely defined mandate that we must digitally transform, or somebody's read some article in I don't know Harvard Business Review, and then someone will ask the question, "Well, what does that mean?" And they start off on a project before they've done a survey of all the available technologies that are out there in the market. They're not, and worse, a lot of these executives, they don't have a lot of time. They don't get a chance to get out of the office much. They haven't kicked tires on a bunch of cool new technologies. And more importantly, they've never really spent the time to imagine if I put three killer technologies together, like workflow, exception handling, artificial intelligence, whatever, can I radically change how we do, for example, uh, time reporting for payroll. It should be so automated that only a couple of tiny little exceptions ever pop up that somebody actually needs to dig into. And yet when I go to clients, you know, it's a scramble every pay period uh, with a lot of HR people manually reviewing all the time records, trying to find out which ones were out of uh, out of sorts because somebody forgot to book their time or whatever it is, or somebody fat fingered, you know, a number and put in like 800 hours of work this pay period, not 80. So we've got these problems. People are, people are trying to start a project before they even understand what is the art of the possible. And that requires people stop, take the time, learn, get really smart about what's possible out there, and then ideate some new kinds of processes and solutions they're going to provide structural and competitive advantage for the company longer term. You can't shortcut this stuff. Now, how about the companies that do move forward with the transformation project, right? So there are a lot of companies that are probably not ready for it, but those that do move forward, when can they start? What needs to happen before they can start? What are some things that you find through uh, the work that you've done? 
to be very transparent, I started working on this book two and a half, three years ago. And in all those um, meetings with executives and plant tours and on and on and on, I kept running into gobs and gobs of these uh, what I'd call transformational misfires as opposed to digital transformations. And I could have written a book about that, but I thought that would be a real depressing book to read because there was no hope at the end of the, the end of the tunnel there. And I, so I kept at it and I kept going until I figured out what is it that the that companies do well and get to the finish line. And so to answer your question, basically what the book even evolved into was there are four things companies have to really get right. The first one, and we were talking about that a second ago, they have to do what's called a scan. They have to figure out what is the art of the possible? What is the state of technology today? But also, where is technology going to be in just a couple of years? Because a lot of firms actually build toward what's called the convergence. It's when two or three new kinds of capabilities are going to be in prime time shape in the very near future. Uh, like right now, I would say machine learning is still a little bit in its infancy, but in two or three years time, we're going to see it used in all kinds of, let's say, analytics and smart data visualization capabilities and workflow technologies. So what companies have to do is they need to look at two and three different kinds of technologies as well as what's going to be coming available in the next two or three years. And this is called building for the convergence. There's no point in spending two or three years on a transformational project using technologies that were mainstream two or three years prior. You want to build to where the market's moving, not where it's already been, because that will give you the longest competitive advantage window possibly possible out there. That's the scan. The second thing is, um, uh, is really around ideation. And that's, okay, I've, I've figured out all the cool stuff that's out there. Now I need to figure out how would we implement that at our company? What would we do? How would we design our processes? What kind of skills are we going to need? And what you're doing is putting meat on the bone and building a very interesting kind of plan uh, and a vision for what this is going to look like. The third step is reconcile. And this is one that really catches companies by surprise. And this is where you have to realize like, huh, I think we may be designing a bridge too far here that we're trying to overreach what our company could do. And when you do the reconcile, you're trying to figure out, do we have the people, the skills? Do we have the physical plant and equipment? Do we have the capital? Do we have the management leaders who could drive this kind of initiative? And a lot of projects, the wheels come off the wagon right here at the reconcile stage. Finally, when you get past all of that, you've got a great idea, a great project, you got the great leaders, you've got the team, you're ready to go, then you're actually ready to do the transformational work itself. And for anyone who's ever been part of a big transformational project like, um, let's say, a payroll HR shared service initiative, you know these are tough things that have change management, education, training, and a whole bunch of other you know issues related to them. And uh, that's the last piece. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that because they've done something transformative in the past that, you know, these kind of projects should just be a slam dunk. And they are anything but that. And, and Brian, I think part of the thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, there's usually some kind of external or internal urgency that's driving the transformation, right? Maybe it's the competitive environment. Maybe it's uh, something inside the organization that's necessitating a, a a rethinking of a particular process or function. But 
today's digital solutions don't have the same longevity that you know the factories and CRM and HR systems way back then you know had. You you used to have a factory and it would be good enough to run for decades, right? Or you could implement a CRM in the early 90s and that would be good enough for you for the next 15 years possibly. So my question is really twofold here, considering the speed that technology is changing. How do companies justify making all of this effort to change, knowing full well that they're not going to have that change last very long and they're going to need to look to make new changes soon? And really, my second question there is, is there anything companies can do to ensure that when they do make these transformational changes that are very difficult, and as you said, just because you've made one transformational change doesn't mean the next one will be easy, right? So is there anything they could do to make sure that they're not making these changes every five or eight years? Or is that going to be the norm now for, uh, for leaders and organizations? I think most companies are going to have to embark on some kind of um, major change project about every three years, maybe two years, if they absolutely have the appetite for it. They're going to have to be very creative and innovative, and they have to realize, just like you said, that regardless of what the accounting depreciation tables say, your macro's useful life of a manufacturing plant might be 37 and a half years, you and I both know that the products that we use today may not even be around anymore in any form uh, in just a couple more years. So we're behind the times. Our accounting rules don't match up the realities of what's going on in there. And I think a lot of people in executive positions in their minds, they think of change as a steady, constant change rate. And getting their head around the curvilinear or logarithmic, exp, you know, um, or exponential kind of growth rates and innovation mm -hmm. is a tough concept for a lot of people to grab. This is why I think a lot of companies really need to uh, think about creating uh, not just agility, but it's really around speed. And we've got to be able to creatively, you know, we have to be able to create new businesses. And we are also going to have to learn how to sunset plan and shepherd some of these older solutions, uh, you know, into the whatever, either to another company or into the dustbin because they just won't be relevant anymore. I would, I would challenge your listeners to look at all the related businesses that uh, people like whether it's Elon Musk or um, Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Google or what have you, when you see the kinds of things they're in, I guarantee you, like, did any aerospace company seriously think they'd be competing against Google, and which is Blue Origin, I believe, is their rocket systems, Elon Musk with all the SpaceX stuff and so forth. The amount of new competition is incredible, and it's coming from non-traditional competitors. Companies have to learn how to compete in a non-traditional fashion, or they're going to be rendered obsolete. That's the, that's the new reality. So transformation sounds like it can be all-consuming for organizations, right? And if you look at most C-suite executives, they already have their plates full of projects and initiatives. So who in the company do you think should be leading digital transformation projects like a global payroll transformation, HR transformation, ERP, especially when you 
think of this as something that might need to be done every two, three years in some area of the organization? Well, I'm not so much sure or convinced it has to be an executive running a specific functional area. And actually, I think it's more what it more involves is can we find an exec who has a lot of political capital within the firm and is willing to expend it to get these projects done? These kinds of executives, they are rare. And in fact, they might be able to lead a company through one major transformation and then they burn through all their political capital. They generally have to go to some other firm to do another one of these projects because they they basically blown all their capital they had to spend, if you will, at their old employer. Now, that's not to sound dark, but here's what they're up against. Uh, the average age of a CXL in a large firm is around, uh, their tenure, excuse me, is around four years in a position, whether that's the chief marketing officer, the chief revenue officer, chief financial, what have you. Only the CEO sticks around longer. They're around about eight years on average. And the reason this is important is if I were the chief revenue officer of a company and my sales plan is set up or incentive plan is set up, then I could make two more times my salary if I hit my current period sales numbers. I'm going to do that because I don't get a giant bonus for taking on some transformational initiative that may not even work. And furthermore, I may not be with the company after two or three more years. So I'm going to do what I'm comfortable doing. I'm not going to step outside my comfort zone and lead one of these initiatives. Guess what I'm telling you is I'm not convinced that a lot of companies have the leaders in-house. More importantly, if they were the kind of top-down command and control kind of company, they probably got rid of anyone who sticks their neck out or asks difficult or uncomfortable questions or challenges the status quo. That's the kind of person you need to drive this kind of change. Someone who is makes the regular folks uncomfortable with the current situation. And to that point, I'll ask a very simple HR question to your listeners. Would any of your companies have hired Elon Musk Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, or any number of other successful disruptive CEOs we know out there, would they have ever hired them right out of college? And if you did, how many years would they have stuck around in your company? And the answer is probably they wouldn't have stuck around maybe one or two years because the bureaucracy doesn't reward them to take risk in a lot of established companies. And these transformational projects, you need someone who has vision, can ex uh, will uh, move towards the risk and knows how to manage downside risk. Those are rare qualities in large established firms. And I think about this from the perspective, Brian, of uh, maybe not a C-suite executive, but let's take an HR director or a global payroll practitioner. If they're charged with making some change, and let's say they're not that influential, or maybe they're recently employed by that company, so they don't have that political capital inside the company uh, to drive that change, to create that alignment and buy-in. What, what do they do? What's the suggestion for kind of making sure that they're not setting themselves up for either an incremental change or a, a you know, outright failure if they take on a transformation project? 
what you could do, and, and I'm a little loath to say this, is lots of people want to be able to break up a transformative project into a bunch of digestible chunks. The trick, though, is each chunk has to deliver measurable value, and that's kind of tough. And furthermore, you got to ask yourself if you're that vulnerable or thin on political capital and power in the company, and you don't know whether you're going to get funding for the next chunk or not, you may still not be overly successful. So bottom line is, if you chunk it up, you got to you got to be really clear how you can get maximum value at every step along the way. And you got to ask yourself, how am I going to build allies in the company who are going to help me at the executive committee fight for additional budget for, you know, additional phases? And that will take some skill to do. You know, so these are not, I'm, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to sugarcoat things. I'm just telling you, this is the way it is. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, it's a ruthless game of politics inside a lot of, you know, again, established companies. Further to, to your point, I would tell you that there's a lot of cool stuff going on in HR, payroll, and related disciplines. Smartest people I run into are the ones who ally with someone like a marketing person and they'll take them to some of the big HR shows to go look at some of the new, for example, candidate relationship marketing technology. And they'll, they steal great ideas from marketing on how to build a funnel of, you know, uh, instead of prospective customers, a funnel of prospective employees. And they'll look at some of the new technology that's out there. In fact, they may even borrow the same CRM technology that the uh, marketing department's already licensed and they'll turn that into some kind of tool you know finding allies may be another way to go and trying to repurpose some other kind of technology to solve these new generation problems for HR and payroll could be a good solution too yeah Brian and um, I think the finding partners is interesting I'm sure you've come across the challenger customer book or the challenger sale book and I think you know one of the points that's constantly made in those books is that successful sales and successful transformations involve a lot of constituencies, and I think it was either 5.6 or you know six people in an organization at senior levels need to be bought in and driving a particular transformation and change in order for it to have any success, right? So I think that idea of finding allies in your organization and using them to align and then drive your project, and maybe even you can find some of those individuals who have more political capital than you may at this time in your organizational tenure to help you drive that, right? Yep. It's a good idea to, re to get multiple folks to buy in. Um, what you want to do is you want to make sure that the entirety of the organization, or at least its leadership, is aware of what you're trying to do. And you don't want to go in presenting it as a done deal, but you come in with a, a uh, sort of a plan and, and by design, you tell it's not fully baked out yet, but you want them to basically put their two cents in on the deal. You want to give them the opportunity to personalize a little bit for themselves so that they feel uh, a part of the change and hopefully they'll support you longer term. 
But yes, you need to get their cooperation because at the end of the day, some of these transformative initiatives cause companies to rethink, are we going to sell some of the same products? You know, we're we going to sell a different kind of product or service going forward. Are we going to shut down some facilities? Are we going to open up new facilities in other parts of the world? All those kind of questions are things a project leader should know about, and maybe they haven't been briefed on them uh, in advance. So you need to have the flexibility in the plan, and you need to brief you know, these people and make them allies. Thanks for tuning in for part one of our discussion. We're going to continue this conversation in part two, now focusing our attention on the role that vendors and their solutions have to play in your change management and transformation projects. In part two, Brian shares some advice on picking the right vendors for your projects, about crafting compelling business cases, and about staffing your company with leaders that will drive holistic transformation efforts. Brian will also share a few examples of companies that have implemented creative solutions to continuous improvement, to embedding continuous improvement in their production processes and, and even their company culture. So tune in to part two of this discussion for more.